Section 1 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J.F. Parks. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920 by G.K. Chesterton. Section 1. November 21st, 1919. At the sign of the world's end, echoes of the last strike. I have always counseled the young to be kind to bishops, and I differ from the satiric version of them which amounts to saying that all is gas and gaiters. Mr. Wells gave an amusing account of the soul of a bishop, and I have my doubts about the see of the bishop, and I suspect it was rumpty food. The same great writer has said more seriously in one of the most fascinating of his first social essays that the bishops, socially so much in evidence, are intellectually in hiding. But I do not think it is half so true of such clerical dignitaries as it is of civil ones. A man like Dr. Gore is much more intellectually in the open than a man like Mr. George. Dr. Gore's Anglo-Catholic principle, whether right or wrong, can be stated, and he states it. What principle does a politician ever state, let alone stand by? When the bishop states a conclusion, he makes it clear, though he may not make it fashionable. When the premier states a conclusion, it is fashionable to make a fuss of it, but it is impossible to make sense of it. The politician who could reply, as Mr. George did to the liberal candidate on the question of liberalism, is intellectually in hiding under the bed or up the chimney. He said, apparently, that nothing should sever him from the principles of liberalism, but that the time had not yet come to resume our party hostilities, since the nation still needs our united help. There is nothing exceptionally wrong in this. It might be found in any twenty leading articles or speeches, and how futile it is. Does our country ever cease to need our sincere efforts? Is it ever right to divide the nation into factions frivolous and unmeaning? How soon may we take a holiday and play havoc with all human institutions? He talks as if the time once was, and will soon be again, when we need think of nothing in life but the buff and blue rosettes of a carnival, and buff would then be his color. But if it is not a mere question of buff and blue, it must be some sort of question of right and wrong. If the differences are not frivolous, they are presumably differences about how to help the country, differences about what does help the country. If men really agreed about that, there never would have been any parties. If men really differ about that, there can never be any combination of parties. The coalition would mean one man adding his efforts to save the country to another man's efforts to ruin it. By this theory, there is one huge, staring, self-evident public good we could all join in doing whenever we liked, but which we never do except at desperate moments, spending the rest of our lives in pretending to differ when we don't. I hardly know if the politician looks worse if this is true or if it is false, but I only take this as a typical tag of a politician, and I doubt if anyone can find any train of thought so tangled in any utterance of any bishop. But just as I am moved to this comparative compliment to the Episcopal bench, I encounter one extraordinary exception. It is still, I think, an exception, whereas Mr. George is no worse than many other politicians. But all the same, an able and respected bishop, Dr. Weldon, seems actually to have talked as much nonsense as any of our enlightened newspapers or of any of our progressive public men. 
the bishop is reported perhaps by his enemies as saying in so many words that such a thing as the railway strike was morally the same as the invasion of belgium i fear there can hardly be any mistake about a thing so enormous any more than about his riding to his cathedral on an elephant therefore after a brief struggle with my episcopal sympathies i conclude that he did say it and i can only contemplate it with a sort of despair as if a mountain had suddenly appeared in my garden the bishop had not thought out any real ethical reason for thinking the invasion of belgium wrong in other words that he does not really think the invasion of belgium wrong anyhow he does not see its wrong on the same scale as i do or so crazy a comparison would never even have crossed his mind it is enough of course to state a single and simple example what the comparison involves when the bishop was a vicar we will suppose that he had a curate or three curates and that one or all of these curates complained of their salaries and resigned their positions with a haste which their vicar honestly thought inconsiderate and unfair according to the moral pronouncement of the bishop this conduct of the curates is really the same as if they had broken into the vicar's house at night cut the throats of the housemaid and the housekeeper tied the vicar up so as to be able to torture him taken away half his wealth and valuables in a wheelbarrow and then explained that they had only burgled the vicarage because it was a shortcut to burgling the church next door if the curates did all this they would only be acting on the same moral principle which had moved them to ask for a little better payment and this although the whole world knew that curates were abominably badly paid this as far as i can understand it is the ethical principle which the ecclesiastical authority has laid down and the reason added renders it all the more remarkable the authority said apparently that the two things were the same because the english strikers resembled the german soldiers in that they used force to which it seems sufficient to reply that they did not I wish somebody would explain to me what in the world people really mean when they talk perpetually about a strike being an appeal to force. As a fact, a striker is not using force upon anybody. He is simply ceasing to use force upon anything. What I suppose they mean, if they could only say it, is that he is threatening people with consequences that are physical and not merely moral. The striker does this and so does the employer and the arbiter and the government when it doubles the parts of the arbiter and employer if the striker tacitly threatens to starve out the purchaser so does the employer tacitly threaten to starve out the striker both if they are humane may hope that the threat will be enough but both threaten bodily and not merely mental things so does the curate threaten the vicar with bodily fatigue when he asks for something approximating to bodily sustenance the comparison between a threat involved in all bargaining and the barbarian deluge of nineteen fourteen will do one thing and one thing only it will give the pacifist labor men an excellent excuse for saying that we never saw any serious or spiritual condemnation resting on the tyrants of europe that we only cursed what interfered with our own snobbish comfort and convenience as we might curse a cat or a dog or a stool or a working man for the rest I can conceive no more direct incitement of the populace to armed revolt than the statement that there is no difference between that and the legal and logical collective bargain. You may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb, and you may as well be anathematized for a revolution as for a strike. If a striker cannot logically be shocked at the Germans invading Belgium, he certainly need not shrink from the much nobler novelty of the English invading England. But if this be true of all strikes, 
it is rather specially true of the recent railway strike on that occasion the upper and middle classes missed an opportunity of seeing daylight and doing justice which may never recur and a mark was put against them in the proletarian mind which may be remembered with serious results for that strike should have been supported because it was in a very special sense a legitimate strike it was not only not revolutionary in its method but it was not revolutionary in its aim it was not even political in its aim it was in marked contrast with the combinations that had been threatened touching intervention in foreign things or even nationalization of domestic things it was a strike on a fair point of wages and the trades unionists now naturally conclude that those who do not want a trade union used for that purpose on that occasion do not want it used for any purpose on any occasion and they are right these people do not want the trade union to exist at all the question now is not how these guilds shall be directed but whether they shall be destroyed it may be relevant to reply here to a correspondent who has asked us why we say that the unions should be supported at any cost though we differ from the collectivism which many of them demand the answer is that when we say at any cost we really mean that there is a cost that it is in a sense a choice of evils a fabian fuss of transferring powers on paper will do no good but it will not do so much harm as the capitalist completion of the servile state by the utter ruin of the guilds the nationalization will only be sham nationalization but the slavery will be real slavery so long as the trade brotherhoods exist they can be converted to a more human social philosophy but when once they are gone all power will pass not to misunderstood minorities of old radicals or new distributists but simply to the millionaires the unions will probably provide a plain test and proof both of their theoretic inconsistency and their practical utility i will wager that when they are part of the state they will still strike against the state it will be bad collectivism but it will be good common sense when a government department oppresses them as it will they will treat it as a common not to say vulgar employer for their instincts will be more liberal than their ideals but nothing and nobody will strike against the state when it is really the servile state the employers have declared war to regain all the omnipotence they had when there were no trade unions at all and their first defiance was the late demonstration during the railway strike end of section one recorded by j f parks